Well, hello and welcome to the very first of a new podcast series outrageously called Simon Mayo's Books of the Year. Yes, it's nice pretty... and pompous, that's how I like it. <laughs> and uh, Matt Williams and I are thrilled to be doing this again, aren't we, Matt? Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are. Uh, if you love the uh, the Radio 2 Book Club stuff that we did, hopefully you'll feel right at home here. And if you never heard those shows, well, they were great. Where were they you? They were fabulous. They were, they were really... They were, we put all that effort and you couldn't be bothered. Groundbreaking. Anyway, so every uh, show that we do, uh, which has got guests, we're going to do... Uh, well, we're going to aim to do one fiction guest and one non-fiction guest. But these are our rules. And if one time we just want to do two fiction or two novels, mm. we'll just... Stick it to the man. That's, that's what, what we'll do, what yeah. Do. Um, and also, hopefully, uh, we're going to promote some unpublished uh, stuff as well. So if you're um, a parent um, or a teacher or anyone, really, who's seen something extraordinary um, that you think uh, deserves our attention... Uh, by all means, email it to us. Now, can I just say, having asked you to do that, <laughs> we don't. I don't want a whole book. I don't, no, no. You know, uh, we don't want you to send in pages and pages of stuff. But uh, you'll hear a very good example later on. Uh, Robbie Williams is going to be our second oh, yeah. guest. Linda Laplante is our first guest coming up very shortly. Um, but uh, I read one of our first stories to Robbie, and it's written by a 10-year-old, and his mum sent it in, and his mum just looked at it and thought... Wow, that's amazing. Send it on the email. We think it's amazing. It is amazing. And and so it's in. So it might be that you send us a paragraph. I mean, literally, it's got to be like 90 seconds, two minutes worth of stuff. Uh-huh. And if we really like it, then we would like to put it up there so we have unpublished work and we have big published work as well. It is a very high bar, this 10-year-old set, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those stories which I think will you'll go, wow, he's 10. Now, you you'll either go along with this uh, or you won't. But it's one of the things that uh, Mark Kermode and I talk about a lot on the film show podcast that I do, which is that some people just don't believe that kids <laughs> can be this smart. Uh, and I absolutely believe yes, they that, they, that they that they can. Yeah. So I think you're just going to have to go with that. Uh, anyway, so the email address. So we mentioned this on the on the teaser thing from, from a few days ago, uh, that the email address, which I kept stumbling over, yeah. is mayobookpodcast at gmail.com. Yes. Dot com? Yeah. Yes, dot com. Yes. <laughs> so the fact that I'm stumbling over it made me think maybe we could get a better email. Yes, let's change the email even now, yeah. So the other email, so that's working, but we've also got booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. Wow. Now, which do, you, which do you think? I've got to, I do, I mean, that's the title of the podcast, isn't it? Books yes. of the Year. So I, I've got to say, I'm, 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 I'm switching to that one, you, I think. Yeah. Okay. So if you want to send us stuff, we'll, 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 we will honor mayobookpodcast <laughs> at gmail.com. Yeah. But we will particularly worship those who send in stuff to books of the year at yahoo.com. That's books of the year at yahoo.com. In one. Well done. Do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So coming up later, uh, Robbie Williams talking about, it's a kind of a memoir which he's written with his mate Chris Heath. Uh, you'll also hear that story from a 10-year-old. But in the meantime, here we go with the books of the year, book number one, Linda LaPlante, one of the legends of crime fiction in this country and the world. <laughs> Linda LaPlante is here. Hello, Linda. Hello. How did, was that big enough for, <laughs> big enough <laughs> for an introduction? Lovely. Uh, and you and Matt were just discussing Liverpool and which yes. areas of Liverpool you know and which areas <laughs> you come from and which areas you went to school. And, you know, feel free to... Uh, <laughs> Obviously. ..to... To go back to there. Um, so there's so many things to talk to Linda about, but uh, Widows is 
is back out. Uh, has it ever gone away? Anyway, it's been repackaged. Matt's now going to describe the yes. cover of Widows 2018. So, so the, the new book is, well, it's all black, apart from right in the middle, we've got, a well, a widow's face, but it's only from sort of the eye, uh, just below the eyes down. She's clearly uh, wearing a veil, and, and then obviously in big white letters above that is Linda LaPlante, below it, picked out in gold, Widows, but right at the top, soon to be a major feature film. <laughs> So there's so there's so much to talk about about this series, but let's let, if we just start from from scratch, Linda, tell us the story about widows and it, you know it's TV life, it's book life, and the and uh, and now how we get to make a movie in 2018. Just start at the beginning. Um, I sent a two-page treatment, um, which is uh, you know the brief outline of a story. Now I'd never written a crime series, nothing. I don't know. Um, I was fortunate because it hit the right desk at the right time and it went to Verity Lambert at Euston Films who was at that moment looking for a crime show. And you were an actress at the time? Yes. Yes. And um, for some obscure reason, I put Linda LaPlante, not my stage name. So they had no idea who I was. So they said, well, let's have a talk bring her in so I get a message to go in to meet Verity Lambert and she used to be quite formidable really and when I walked in um, her secretary went are you Linda LaPlante I said yes <laughs> she said we thought it was a transvestite trucker <laughs> 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 and so Verity took one look at me and went oh no it's you <laughs> it's you <laughs> and uh, she said look because you've never written anything uh, do you want to do the first episode and then if it comes in and it's all right, we'll do all six with you. Um, but would you be prepared to get another writer in if you don't come up to scratch? And I'm going, yes, yes, you know, yes. You know, probably if she'd said, shall we do it all on ice? I'd have said, yes, all right, <laughs> I don't mind, yes. So securing that commission and getting home was like... I had no idea where to go from there. And I, I, I remember sitting there thinking, now what do I do? And what is odd, as an actress, you know, there is a kind of... I, what it is, it, it's... You know, I'd played prostitutes virtually in every crime show you could think of that was on the TV. Right. Zed Cars, you name it, I was in it. Hello, love, you're coming my way. Because... You know, I was red-haired, from Liverpool, actress, short, prostitute. And that's... I was cast over and over again in so many programmes. In fact, when Melvin Bragg did a programme on me and my life, they clipped them all together. I had no idea how many doors I'd fallen out of. <laughs> you know, windows, you go my way, love. And um, I don't know why, for the first time, the ego of the actress... I can play a prostitute, of course I can. But I went out to Source and I went to all around Charing Cross and talked to the girls there. And uh, at first they were very rude and I kept on saying, look, I just want to talk to you, give, you know, I'll pay you. And then we used to go to this awful coffee bar and suddenly the blinkers came off my eyes as they talked to me hmm. and they were there for their own... You know, they had a lot of weekenders that they came in on the train 
for the weekend would earn the money and go back to Sheffield or wherever. Compare the... So that, that two-page synopsis that mm. you wrote and handed in, was that pretty much the story that we've got in this in this book? Yes. Yeah. It didn't change very much? No, hardly at all. So no. in those two pages, and you've never done anything before, you've got it absolutely spot on? Yeah, unbelievable. Magic, really. Would that happen now if someone... You know, a, a, an actor with no writing experience delivered two pages, would they get commissioned to write a six-part series? If it went to the right person, that's a possibility. I mean, I'm always saying to writers, please don't send in a full manuscript because it won't be read. And make sure you send it in to the right department. So if you're doing a comedy and you send it into a drama department, somebody will say, oh, this is a comedy, not for us. Um... One of the biggest lessons I learned script writing was in a producer's office at the BBC and the walls were literally floor to ceiling, script upon script. And I said, what are all these scripts? Oh, they're from people who've sent in work. And so it's hard. So make, you know, a writer's got to find his way like a journalist and say, OK, who's head of the drama department? Do we know what they're looking for? And go in that way. Um, I was just very lucky. How different was it, how difficult, how easy, how straightforward was it to turn it into a novel? Um, well, it, it would happen to be quite quick, really, at the time, because nobody expected it to be such a huge success. And I'd never written a novel. And I did have to do quite a lot of work on this new one coming out, although it is obviously the same story. Um it was very rough, shall we say. In what way? <laughs> it wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> so you can say that with the advantage, with this kind of from a vantage point, twenty years on. I know a lot of people will, will will know the story, but if you can, I know you've done this a number of times. Could you just remind everyone what this what this story is and why Dolly is this extraordinary character and why she has to become this extraordinary woman? Just tell it, remind us of the story. Uh, um, Dolly Rawlings is married to a man called Harry. He is a very cool, sophisticated, in a way, but East End background. He is successful because he has an antique emporium and he is also a criminal. He fences and he's a good one. He has never been caught. He has never spent a day in jail. She fell in love with him when she was 17 and worshipped the ground he walked on. She was unable to give him the child she craved and he wanted. And... She did know the wealth and how they lived came from criminality, but she was able to really and truly bluff it out, didn't want to really know. She was a very clever woman, though, and then he kissed her goodbye one morning, said, I'll see you later, and the next thing she was told was the police arrived and they said... Um, Four men have been blown up in a failed attempt at a security wagon. The explosives they were using in their wagon have blown the men to smithereens, basically. And this goes to a time when there was no DNA. Um, and so the identification of the men involved was difficult. Harry Rawlins' body was identified. He must have put his hands up to his face to protect the blast. And his skull was absolutely blown to smithereens, so there was no teeth identification, nothing. 
but he had a wristwatch which he had given him on their last anniversary and he never took it off and she said that is my husband and so the widows of the other men involved are not her class not her strength not her age or her wealth and it is in a way madness that engulfs her because she won't let him die she won't let him go and she encourages the other women to meet her and they're very very different and she actually has discovered that her husband kept ledgers with every detail of every crime he'd ever committed not only that but the names and addresses wives children you work for harry rawlins you try and betray him he will kill you and having them was like a time bomb every villain in england wanted those books they all knew about them but she had them and in an act of madness she says to the women we could do the robbery they failed i've got all the plans i've got the weapons i've got everything we need and you know the, the reality is you've got very different women and they're not likely to go, oh, that's a good idea, right, let's do it. And they, yeah, you know, we'll go along with it. And it happens, it twists, because bit by bit, they first off say, look, get her money, do what she says, she's out of her mind. Bit by bit, and bit by bit, she draws them out. And they do go ahead with the robbery. Okay, so that's that's an outline of the story, uh, Widows by Linda Laplante. Matt. Yeah, I, uh, what struck me about this, Linda, is that clearly, obviously, anyone who's familiar with this series, and it was a massive success uh, in the eighties, will remember that w there are female characters here being put front and centre. Not only that, but it's more than the sort of two-dimensional female characters. You've already mentioned that when when you were acting yourself, you'd be putting you'd sort of typecast into these roles. Yeah. It would always be the same, and yet here was a series where it was three-dimensional. Where I, if we're going to talk about Dolly, very early on, we know Dolly, her backstory involved... She, she was clearly aware of what her husband was doing and, indeed, was sometimes party to, to, the, to the criminal acts that he was involved in. And that's what... It, it, strike, it shouldn't be shocking now, but it certainly was shocking in the 80s to have four women involved who weren't just the standard stereotypes that you would expect of female characters. Yeah, it was, but it was hard to to get them to be absolutely truthful. And so I had to find them. And I worked with women in prisons and, and wives of prisoners. Um, and it's, you have to become, I learned very quickly, put away a notebook, don't tape them, because they immediately stopped talking as soon as they saw a tape anywhere near. And so I'd just talk and I had to work quite fast to retain it. And in those days, I was so broke, I used to have a store in um, Labrick Grove selling rubbish, actually. It was, you know, <laughs> my own gear. And uh, there was a woman on a vegetable store, and, uh, I mean, she used to have this heavy, thick coat on, fur boots, little gloves with the fingers out, and a headscarf, and often a woolly hat on top of that. And she'd say, oh, come on now, lovely tomatoes, feel the hardest heart, come on, lovely, come on, darling, feel the tomatoes. And one of the other women came up to me and said, um, her husband's in the neck for murder. Dangerous man, dangerous, terrible. 
you go talk to her. <laughs> I can't tell the language and how many times she removed me from her stall over and over and over again. And because I tried everywhere, I, I said, I'm very serious. I am trying to write a series. And she was brutal to me. And then one day, for no reason at all, she said, do you want to come to my house for a cup of tea? And that's when I first met the beginning of Dolly Rawlins. She was astonishing. Um, it, sound, it sounds like she opened a window almost into, a, into another world for you. Well, it was more than a window. It was a huge door because, A, her flat was full of antiques, thick carpet, Important that you know comes out later is that she was dressed immaculately, gone with the funny clothes and the, you know the cut off gloves. She was in a very beautifully tailored Jaeger suit, and she also was playing Catherine Ferrier Life Without Death on her gramophone. And that concept and that first meeting means that how you trigger things is when at a later date we were casting. And a costume designer said, oh, yes, criminal wife, right, crimpling. <laughs> Always. <laughs> yeah, lavender crimpling, don't you think that would be good? And I said, no, I'm afraid not, she's cashmere Jaeger. And that is terribly important, the way that character looked, her clothes, her home, that had never been seen before. Everything had been so stereotyped. But I only was able to do that because I'd, like, touched it, I'd been there. And she allowed me visiting time with her husband. Wow. I listened to the Kathleen Ferrier, actually, before, before we mm. did this, before we, before we met up, just because I th it, it, it's, a, it's a key moment quite early on uh, mm. in the story. And I thought it's was, it was touching on what you were saying, what Matt was asking you about, that here we've got this extraordinary woman who is about to go off and try and commit this mm. crime uh, that, and, and grieving for the loss of her husband. And she's listening to opera. Yeah. And that somehow is still extra that sort of feels as though even though it's a tiny moment I thought I want to listen to this Kathleen Ferrier track because this is she's not listening to rock and roll or she's not listening to jazz or anything sleazy you know she's listening to in quotes upmarket music was that a was that a fight did anyone say excuse me you know not only she's going to be wearing green crimpling but I think <laughs> she'll be listening to a, a little bit of uh, I don't know some West End musicals yeah Barry Mandelow <laughs> bit of Barry. Bit of Barry. Criminal's favourite. You see, this is why it was so terrific because not only is was Verity Lambert a kind of extraordinary lady, and listened. Um, so she would. She insisted whatever I wanted because she knew where I was going. Um, and Ian Toynton, the director, wanted it, and he he was a rare creature. Is a rare creature still. He's very busy still. Um, he loved women um, and he was a very attractive man too. And so whatever I said, because they knew I could take them to source if they wanted. The best moment was when this arm robber <laughs> who had actually done the robbery um, I said to him, would you come in and meet um, the people that are producing this show? And he said, yeah, if they want me to, yeah, I'll do that. So I then said, listen, um, the man that instigated the original robberies, he said he can come in and would you like to talk to him? Oh, darling, yes, that would be wonderful. <laughs> oh, what? Oh, so exciting. Bring him in. Yes. 
And whatever they were expecting, whether it was probably somebody that had played a villain in Minder, I don't know. But this rather handsome, long, blonde-haired, youngish man in a big leather coat with a fair collar came in and they became speechless because they didn't know how to talk to him. And eventually he said, um, would you like me to show you the lead-up for the robbery? Oh, yes, yes, that would be very nice, thank you. The director sort of pressing himself back in the chair as he suddenly put his hand into his <laughs> chest pocket and they all shot back in their chairs as he produced these little dinky toys. <laughs> <laughs> and he did the robbery, the line-up of the vehicles. Explain, uh, Linda, then, so this is extraordinary iconic television. Uh, the novel comes along and now the novel is back out and we've alluded to the fact this is going to be this is going to be a movie. So and not just a movie, it's a Steve McQueen movie. Wow. So this is a man who does extraordinary films. Just explain how how this has come about. Well, I I, I was at Buckingham Palace actually. Oh, I saw. Uh, okay. And it was the Royal Academy people any student that had been at the Royal Academy over the past 50 years. And um Steve McQueen came up to me. I mean, I truthfully didn't know who he was, if I'd ever seen him. I knew, obviously, of 12 Years a Slave. And he said, are you Linda LaPlante? And I said, yes, I am. Because people often, when they ask my name, have something very rude to say. You know, it's like transvestite trucker or something. So <laughs> he, he comes up and he goes, are you Linda LaPlante? And I said, yeah. He said, I saw Widows when I was 13. Now, he's a very large black man. And in his 40s, I think. And it's kind of freaky when somebody is standing saying, I adored your work when I was 13. Because wow. you want to say, yes, well, I wrote it when I was five. <laughs> um, anyway, he said, um, I've always remembered it. Um, and the empowerment of women and those brilliant performances. And he said, I would like to make a movie. And I just stood there, and I mean, I was so astonished and so happy. Okay. I said, yes. <laughs> yes, you know, there was never a point of saying, can I be in it? But it was just, I was just knocked out. I've seen the, I've seen the trailer. It looks as though it's going to be astonishing. Have, were you, did you go and watch it on set? No. Because Steve was, he, he literally kind of picked up where it had been and lifted it into... Uh, present day Chicago it's very political but at the centre of it and the heart of it are the four women and when we met and talked about it he was very very keen to know where they came from why they were the way they were um, and I kept on saying you have to love these women uh, for real um, and so we worked together shall we say. <laughs> and so, obviously, this is now set modern day. The The original series is, is based in the 80s, and this book is obviously in the 80s. And I'm wondering, because as I was reading it, it felt very much of the 80s. Now, you've already mentioned that when you were rewriting, there, there were bits that you sort of wanted to adapt. But how tempting was it 
when there are certain things that are deeply rooted in the 80s. You've, all, you've sort of alluded to it, to it. I found it very funny. Basically, there's a chief inspector leaves a room and as he's leaving the room, he breaks wind loudly and laughs. And it's, I thought, right, that is, that, that's not something that would happen now that would be okay now. And there are certain aspects that come across in the 80s that you think, oh, I'd like to soften that a little because a sort of 21st century audience isn't going to react in the right way. Were you tempted to sort of write those bits out? Because I, I think it really works that you've kept most of those in no i wouldn't write them out because uh i don't know i i it does happen you know catherine tate's you know grandmother oh yes she drops them all the time and so a very large part <laughs> and it's like it does happen uh and then the police are very different creatures in those days to now they're so politically correct now the police and so you know you wouldn't be allowed to speak to or treat your you know superior the way this the whole team look at this man that's hunting this Harry Rawlins um, and it's you wouldn't be allowed to do it today um, because there's laws now heavy duty laws and you treat your team of officers with respect. What do we get from you next, Linda? I'm doing a. Uh, the continuation of Jane Tennyson's life as a young policewoman, climbing bit by bit through the ranks. And um, it comes from... So Tennyson was the first book, then we had Hidden Killers, and then um, Good Friday, and now one coming out is Murder Mile. Well, we'll look forward to that. It'll be a publishing event as ever. Uh, Linda, thank you so much uh, for joining us on our podcast. It's been uh, it's been good to see you again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks to Linda Laplante for being our first guest. Uh, if you want to let us know what you think of her of her books, if you've got any reviews, it's booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. Oh, very good. Smooth. It's almost as if, you know, yeah, know. it's settling in. Uh, you can tweet us at Books of the Year. Ah, yes, you got that in one as well. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. No, it's very good. Now, uh, we've teamed up with audible.co.uk to offer you a free audiobook of your choice. So this is really a podcast that just likes to give. We do. <laughs> okay. Goodness me. So you could choose one of Linda's. You could choose Robbie Williams' new one. Could choose one of yours. Yeah, we could never mention that on the radio, could right. we? Normally, you, see, you can't do that kind yeah. of thing. But yes, I suppose. I suppose if people wanted to. <laughs> you, you <laughs> Simon May have written a book. Several. There are two. Uh, there are only two audiobooks. The first Hitchbook was an audiobook, and the new one... This feels so uh, this feels it, yeah, so no, wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah which is yeah. Mad Blood Stirring is a very good audiobook. Anyway, forget I ever mentioned that. I'm sort of embarrassed. Obviously. I'm, I'm did you did you flashing. voice the first audiobook for No, each? no, done by proper actors in, oh, really? in each case. Actors okay. who can do accents. <laughs> <laughs> Not just camp. Anyway, if you want a free one, uh, all you have to do is register for a one month free trial to claim your free audiobook. There are over two hundred thousand to choose from. We've mentioned just a few. The 30-day free trial means that you can choose a free audiobook, which is yours to keep whether or not you decide to cancel uh, after the trial period. So you can sign up at audible.co.uk slash books of the year. So that's where you get your free audiobook, audible.co.uk slash books of the year. Robbie Williams, coming next. Okay, so here we are. We're, we're discussing books of the year. This is uh, this is show one for us. Delighted to say Robbie Williams is here. How are you doing, Robbie? I'm really good, thanks, and guys. And you were just giving us some book recommendations. What are you What are you saying? Here? Uh, Them by John Ronson. 
Uh, is a great book, and then jokingly I said I am the secret footballer, but I loved I am the. That's secret a great. It's a great book. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. is a great book, and I've, I've read all the secret footballer books. Um, I also like Hunt for the Skinwalker by uh, George Knapp, and there's a ranch in Utah called Skinwalker Ranch where mysterious uh, phenomena happens uh, regularly, and uh, I visited the ranch. After reading the book, and I could say that uh, nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> so what's but it? I like Hunt for the Skinwalker. What else do I like? I like Jim Mars books too, and they're all like conspiracy-based UFO stuff. So that's what I'm into. Uh, does that mean you're into conspiracy theories in general, or you just like reading about them? Um, I, well, you know, when the internet started to become huge, there was. Um, Rabbit, various rabbit holes that you could fall into yeah. and go down. And I spent a lot of time down those rabbit holes and going, oh, my God, the world is an illusion and we're being run by reptiles and this is a terrible thing. Thank God the Internet now has exposed this and uncovered it. And uh, I'm since I'm out of those rabbit oh, holes. Right. Okay. Uh, they're not good places to be, Robbie. No, well, they're 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 interesting and you know i needed a break from the real world to be honest with you i was getting a lot of real world stuff happening to me and i needed i i suppose a could be fiction could be not fiction place to go and you know unravel in my own uh, delusions and fantasies and i enjoyed my time there but if you mix that with marijuana it can be a heady mix <laughs> oh my god we've got to get out of california this is a bomb going off and ida my wife we need to move to montana because if we don't move to montana the san andreas fault is gonna break off and everybody's doomed but i'm not there anymore so the book is uh, is <laughs> is reveal uh which you which you've done with with chris heath so can you just who you've worked with before can you just tell us how how that Works and come so in putting this book, which is enormously uh, entertaining and great, thank and, you, and very profound at times uh, and very moving uh, as well. Does he just hang out with you a lot? How does that work? Um, well, first off, Chris, he's a very good friend of mine that's incredibly gifted and smart, uh, incredible journalist, and um, you know, people that know him and know his stuff. Love him, and I would suggest that more people go and check him out and his stuff because he's an incredible mind. And uh, but first and foremost, he's a good mate of mine, and uh, you don't get to hang out with your mates an awful lot, especially with the job that I've got, where I could be in Albania one day and then in Argentina the next day. And I get to hang out with Chris a lot because he's with me and a tape recorder. A tape recorder. I'm from the nineties, <laughs> everybody. He uh, gets his phone out with the app or whatever it is, and he records everything that I say and I do. And it's kind of the book is through his and my eyes. I don't want to because people go, "Oh, you've done an autobiography that other people have written for you. Got a ghostwriter." That's not what this book is. I don't pretend that this book is in my voice, although it's about me and it's everything that I say and do over the last I don't know eight years. That's the process. Chris gets together with me, turns his recorder on or whatever you call it nowadays, and then he writes about it. 
You mean he's not a reel-to-reel tape recorder, which he there? <laughs> he, he's, no, he's, he's moved on from that. He's got a DAT machine. Wow. A DAT yeah. DAT yeah. machine. It's not as cumbersome as the other stuff. D- did he... And then once he's sort of transcribed and put some ideas in the book, jumps around between uh, different dates, is kind of arranged more thematically than chronologically. D- did, was there anything that he'd written that you said, can we... Can we not do that? Can we can we lose that? Or maybe you mentioned it to to your wife, and she said because it's you know it's full and it's frank and it feels as though everything's in here. Yeah, everything's in there. I, I, or, I, I actually, Chris is like, do you mind if we don't put that in? Because <laughs> he wants to protect me, and um, I, I sort of there's something missing in me. I have big blind spots where I don't, you know, maybe Asperger's or autistics. I, I don't know what spectrum I'm on, but I'm on something where it'd be like, well, we can't possibly put that in. And I'm like, oh, why not? And they said, well, it's awful. And I'm like, is it? You know, so genuinely, I'm not making it up. I'm, I'm not being terse. I genuinely mean that. I, I have massive blind spots where I'm like almost begging him to leave things in. It's, it's all in there. You know, I've... Um, it's a curse and a blessing that the shame I feel doesn't uh, spur me on to act in a more grown-up manner. <laughs> I just want to mention your wife before Matt comes in because um, Ida is the star of the book, really. Apart from yourself, I mean, she—you've yeah. uh, done pretty well there. She comes over as a complete saint. Yeah, she does, and <laughs> and and she is. You know, she's incredibly smart, really funny. Um, she speaks like several languages. I'm punching way above my weight. Um, yeah, and she loves me, and I love her, and our relationship is incredible. Um, and it's what it is in the book, you know. Is if she's hiding something Machiavellian from me, she's doing an incredible job, and long may it continue. Yeah. But she, she does, does. She does come across as a star, and she, she deserves is, yeah. to. And I, I love the book, and the reason I love the book is it's so honest. Now, I've I've read tons of um, sport autobiographies, and there are good ones and there are bad ones. And basically, the difference between them is whether that person's going to be honest or not. Well, and, yeah, go on. Sorry. Yeah, well, no. So and so yours is really honest, and you've you've mentioned either the and the the sequence that for me uh, made me think straight away. This is definitely going to be honest, is when you and Ida are having a row, I think you're on a plane, and Chris is sat over the aisle from you, and he details in the book exactly what's going on in this row. And I think at the end, Chris is, is basically saying, I'm, I'm not sure this should go in. I think it's Ida who says it should go in. Yeah. And it's at that point that I thought, oh, right, if that's going in, and bluntly, you don't come out of that particularly well. No, no, I don't. I don't, but, you know, I, I never know on which particular day our, our humour is matching because we are, mine and Ida's humour is quite dark and we can take the mickey out of each other. And on any particular day, you, we'll both be having digs at each other that we quite enjoy. So I think that might be a British thing and she's got British sensibilities. And then on another day, she might say something to me where I'm completely sensitive and can't take it. And, and so it is with her too. And most of the time, it dovetails and we're both joking about completely sensitive things at the same time. And then sometimes we're not. And uh, that particular 
um, bit in the book that you're talking about, I wasn't sure whether we were both joking or whether she was really hurt. And I think she was more hurt than um, uh-huh. than joking. But you're right. You know, it's like I I read biographies about sportsmen too, okay. and you can you kind of like I enjoyed Matt Letizia's book. Yeah, yeah, it was very detailed. Uh-huh. So I just read Matt Letizia's book, and then I opened Paul Merson's book, okay. and like the first page is detailing him with his hand in a door, just about to close it on it so he breaks his fingers so he can't make a bet and it was two very very different books and I know what you're saying about the honesty and hopefully people will enjoy how deeply I reveal myself excuse the pun yeah and uh, which and because uh, reveal is the title of the book why why do you think I mean you outline quite painfully the extent to which a lot of people hate you and and despise you. These are the these are your words, not mine. Do you do you ever sort of sit and think why that is? Is it just the natural counterbalance to being so hugely successful that that bad stuff comes your way, or is there something else going on? Um, I really don't know. And whatever particular time you get me on, whatever particular day, my my theories about it are different. Uh, what is interesting is my compulsion to go and seek that out. You know, the compulsion to go and seek uh, bad stuff about myself so I can justify the bad things that I think about myself. And I'm sure psychiatrists and therapists will have a field day and they continue to this day. But, uh, you know, it's very simple. Don't read it. But yet I'm sort of addicted to the uh, rush or whatever it is that kicks in the brain i'm I'm addicted to going there you go i'm an idiot there you go i can't sing there you go that song was bad i knew it was and it's another thing that's a curse and a blessing because equally it propels me forward and it's made me the person i am today but it's time to give it a rest i'm 44 you know it's like i've done all right for myself and it shouldn't really matter but it's like when some people read what I think is generally referred to as you know, the underside of the internet. You know, if you read things that are above the line, proper journalism, that's quite interesting. And then you read the comments or the notice board, you're thinking, wow, there is so much hatred and so much nastiness out do there. Do you read that me, about yourself? I, I absolutely don't. Never, ever do that. Because you're a proper grown-up. Well, it just seems to me <laughs> you're on a hiding to nothing. You know, you end up just feeling terrible. And, but the whole thing, it's anonymous, it's poisonous. Um, why go there? Uh, absolutely, which is another reason I suppose me and Paul Merson have got something in common. You know, he's there trying to stop himself from doing something he knows he shouldn't do by closing the door on his fingers. Me and him have that addictive personality, and you know, maybe one day I'll find myself with my fingers between a door trying to not press Robbie Williams <laughs> on Google. You, you, you say a number of times in the book, it's quite hard work being Robbie Williams. It's quite hard work being in my head. You know, I um, have um, an interesting <laughs> compulsion, addiction, uh, mental illness, I, I would say, to, to give it a term. And, uh, yeah, I would have that whether I'd be Robbie Williams, the pop star, or... Robert Williams, the labourer working in Stoke-on-Trent, I I just get to tell more people about it because of my job. Does it get any easier? Uh, Yes, it does. I feel as though I wasn't um, 
somebody that had the capabilities to take on board what life had given me, the great opportunities and the highs and the lows. When I was a kid, I just didn't have the sensibilities and uh, I seemed to be filling my shoes a bit more, especially since the kids have arrived. That, okay, this is me. This is what I've been given. It's a wonderful life. Let's get on with it. And day to day, things change. You know, um, I seem to change with the breeze. Uh, and I, you know, I do the same thing as I did the day before. Eat the same things, have the same sleeping pattern, but today's a different day and I, I don't know why it's difficult to get out of bed. Uh, not this day in particular. It just um, is my makeup. It's who I am. I deal with it better now and I'm filling my shoes. I wish it just hadn't taken so long. Yeah. And uh, you, you talk about, we've mentioned Ida and you have Teddy and Charlie, your kids. And at the start of, I think it's pretty much at the start of the book, you have a, I'm not going to get married and I'm not having kids. They're the rules. Well, that didn't go very well. <laughs> so, yeah, tell God your plans and he laughs at them. Um, they were my two commandments, thou shalt not get married and thou shalt not have kids. Um, I come from a broken home, <laughs> it, which sounds really more severe than it actually was. Yeah. And I just looked around me and I, I couldn't see a decent advert for marriage. You know, I just saw people one up in each other in arguments, uh, unhappy, and it didn't look like a good place to be. Uh, also, you know, uh, I was going around the world uh, soiling my oats and that had to stop. And I knew that uh, traditionally you have to be monogamous. And I thought, well, I can't be that. So uh, also, I want to be a good person and I don't want to break anybody's heart. So there's no great advert. I can't be monogamous. Let's not do that. And then where kids are concerned, it's like I'm an infant. I can't look after myself. How am I going to look after a child? So I thought I was doing the same thing by, you know, acknowledging that I can't do either of those things. And then Ida happened and she came into my life and all of those things changed. It's interesting what you're definite about during your 20s and how you could never see your world being any way, in any shape, different than you think it is going to be. And you're idealistic. And then just things change. Life happens. It takes a different course and you get on with it. I'll tell you what um, jumps out of this book for me is, and I don't think we really, it certainly comes across from you talking, but we haven't really talked about it so far as far as the book's concerned. And it is enormously funny. It is so funny. Oh, great. Now, I, the, the one bit I want you to talk about, and I'm hoping you're going to remember this, this sequence, because this, I was reading this in the garden and I laughed so loud that my wife came out and she wanted to know oh, what, what it was. Great. And this is you talking to um, Elton John on the phone. Oh, yes. Elton John on the phone <laughs> about, right, he's just, I'm going to prompt you as much as I can, but I want you okay. to tell the story. Um, he's just come off uh, after a concert and you're, con you're congratulating him about that and his album. But the reason for the phone call is that you want to make shot for shot the video of, I think it's I'm Still Standing. I'm Still Standing. I don't remember it. I'm you really don't sorry. Remember that? <laughs> no, no, I'm really. <laughs> Really sorry, I don't remember it. I, I, I roughly know that that happened, yeah. but my my short term and long term okay. memory is not it great. Is I, so good, right? Well, I'll, shall I tell you what yeah, happened? Yeah, okay. okay, so now this is a section of Robbie's life now being retold by Matt Williams. Okay. 
Okay. Okay. So you're you're on the phone to him, and it is this is a really lengthy conversation, and you are uh, basically saying your congratulations on the new album. It's great, and you've just come off. Uh, how was the concert? Brilliant. I'm yeah. All these and both of you, and you're sharing this real, and it is a lengthy conversation. And you then say about the right. I saw. I was watching. I'm still standing the other day, and I really want to remake this video shot for shot. Is that okay? Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, of course. And this goes on for like 20 minutes. It's pages and pages of this book. And you put the phone down and you say, wrong number. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, all right. Yeah, the old ones are the oldest. Yeah, it was a wrong number. Oh, great, cool. Well, I'm really pleased it made you laugh. (laughs) I I do that all the time, though. I do that all the time. Yeah, I'll be deep personal conversations with my wife and I'll be in a car full of people and I'll put the phone down and say it's the wrong number. Yeah. Do, do you Have you had to check any of these stories back with... Because a lot of famous people in this book, obviously, because you interact with lots of famous people because they're part of your circle. Do, does anything have to be checked with them? Is it OK if I mention this story? Well, the book's been out for a while now. This is the paperback version. And uh, if there was anybody to apologise for, it would have been in the first rounds of people receiving the book. It would seem that with this book, I I don't have a lot to apologise for. And, uh, you know, the people that were pulled up and I've been mean about, I think, deserved it. (laughs) Um, One other incident, then, I think you might remember this, but I thought it was a very moving moment, is after a gig that you did at the O2 and your father is there and there's a conversation that happens about your control of an audience and he because he was an entertainer himself wasn't he and he marvels he said he says you know, I I would go on stage and I'd have a few hundred people there and I'd you know and I'd work the room and I can do that but he said you come on the stage my son goes on the stage and he's got 40,000 people there and he has them from the word go and you can tell there's a sense of kind of wonder and marvel there yeah my dad's my hero i i grew up watching him work and uh, my dad was it arm knocks on new faces i think it was new faces he won his uh, round on new faces in 1974 and became the pete conway comedian on the tap from the television and i grew up marveling at him and watching his ability to pe- put people in the palm of his hand and keep them there all evening. And I, I knew that that was the path that I wanted to take. I wanted to be my dad. I wanted to be like my dad. And if he'd had the opportunity to stand in front of 40,000, 60,000, 70,000 people, he would have done and still does the, the same thing. So it's high praise indeed from my hero. And when you step out, as you did just a few days ago when you're in Russia when when you when you step out do you feel as though you have everyone there maybe it was a completely different event because it was the start of a sporting tournament but when you step on stage do you get an instant feel as to whether you do have that control um i it's a lottery whether robbie williams turns up or not I get on stage and sometimes I have to do it myself and it's terrifying. And then sometimes Robbie Williams turns up and I'm glad he's there because he's you do like... Say, you say that in the book, that there are times where you can spot where you've watched a concert back afterwards and you've gone, that's the bit where Robbie Williams turns up. Yes, yeah, because, you know, Robert Williams from Stokes absolutely terrified to have 80,000 people watching him. Uh, but then, you know, there is this cloak that I put on that's this persona... And that guy is incredibly confident and um, I never know which is which and what is what. 
But I've been reading about stoicism recently. I don't know if you guys have been reading about stoicism. <laughs> not, no. not, not recently, no. No, is that something you did at college? Well... Something you did at I university? I think in the past I've read about the Stoics, but I haven't read about it recently. Where Was it down a rabbit hole on the internet somewhere? Yes, it is, but I, I find the whole idea of stoicism interesting. And uh, before the World Cup, knowing that there was a billion people watching... Um, I could have been that horse that one day wins a race and then the next day goes into the stalls at the beginning and just won't get in because something spooked him. That's me. So I'm at the World Cup and I'm like, well, this could go two ways. I could either be petrified and terrified that something bad is going to happen uh, in front of a billion people or I could be stoic about this and just do it. And it worked. You know, there was something about stoicism where it's a feeling and a thought and an energy. And uh, for that particular time, I was stoic. How did you, So you thought it went well? <laughs> <laughs> Open question. On one hand, yes. <laughs> and then on another hand, I, you know, I, I, all I thought of doing was getting through it without incident. And yeah. I think... You know, I'm, I'm, well, you, why are you? <laughs> we're agreeing with you. Yeah, I right. You got away with it. I got, I, and there was, and somebody gave me one minute to go, and I was like, You're just checking. And one I was minute? like, One minute? Yes. And they were like, Yeah, yeah one, one minute one to minute. go. And I was like, Okay, I've got that. And I thought, There's one minute left. I better do the best I can do. I have, I have to say, in, uh, in, the, in this book, there is a whole section about Party Like a Russian. Yeah. So we're back to September 16, and I love the fact that NME really likes. It and you think that's a terrible thing because whenever enemy like anything that you've done, it's always a disaster. There's always yeah. bad news coming down the yeah. track. And then and then there's a reckons and then some Russians don't <laughs> like it. And then you end up on Russian TV with a guy called Andre Malakov. And then you end up by volunteering to represent them at, Euro <laughs> at Eurovision. You couldn't write it. You couldn't write it. There's the, it it's it's pure comedy. It's where my brain and I'm impulsive. And I say things and um, I, I think in that moment it would be a great idea to represent Russia in the Eurovision Song Contest <laughs> because that plays into some sort of devilment that I enjoy. And then I spend a lifetime explaining myself and why I was wrong. I would just mention that because the Russian episode has, has backstory, which all, all turns up in this, uh, in this book. Uh, one of the things that, that I want to do uh, in this books podcast is not just have people who've written non-fiction but people who've written fiction uh, and also saying to everyone else if you see any extraordinary writing which has been done by you know if you're a parent if your kids write something that you think is amazing send it into us if you're a teacher and you see some outstanding work send it into us because we want to we want to mention that and we got a story uh, which was sent in and I wanted to read it to you so this is this is uh, a story from a 10-year-old boy called Charlie Skinner all right. So this came into our uh, email. It's just a short story. You're not going to be here like for okay. another hour while I read a story. <laughs> it's just a short story written by a 10-year-old kid. And when I read this and when Matt read this, I just think this is, amazing. this is amazing. The story of Callum and the Black Balloon. Callum Jenkins is a typical 10-year-old. Curious, friendly, full of adventure. And he giggles at rude words like boobies and bum. But Callum has a secret. His invisible black balloon. Now, most balloons are fun, but not the black kind. Callum's balloon is filled with worry and anxiety. 
and it floats over his head like his own personal storm cloud. Football in PE, Callum frets about tripping over his feet and scoring an own goal. The Christmas carol concert, what if he forgets the words or sings out of tune? Whatever you do, don't mention his impending doom, a.k.a. sats, or the balloon might just go pop. Even though it's invisible, Callum tries hard to hide his balloon from others. What if his friends find out about it? That's another worry. He's sure none of them have a black balloon. Their balloons are red and blue and green. And in the case of Jacob Jones, his best friend, he's always smiling and doesn't have a care in the world, rainbow coloured. One day, Mum says, Dad's not feeling well today. I'll take you to school. What's wrong with him? Callum hops from foot to foot, tugging at the string of his balloon, hopeful Mum won't notice it rearing up over his shoulder like the bogeyman. Bogeyman, that's funny. Is he sick? Does he have a temperature? The flu? He doesn't dare name the thing that scares him most, the thing he saw an advert for last night, the thing where the dad had no hair. No, Mum replies, filling Callum's lunchbox. He just doesn't feel very well, that's all. It's hard to explain. Go and say goodbye. Callum's balloon is a gigantic dark zeppelin as he pushes open the bedroom door. He flings himself on his father's chest. Hey, champ! Dad sits up in bed. And that's when Callum sees it. A shadow darkening Dad's face. He works himself up to ask, his own monolithic balloon now threatening to engulf the whole world, Dad, do you have a black balloon too? His eyes prickle, hot and itchy. Dad looks at Callum in astonished realisation. Yes, Cal, yeah, I do, but it makes me feel a little bit better knowing that I can talk to you about it. Me too, Dad, me too. Callum smiles as they hug and for the first time he imagines his balloon deflating a little, a fart noise escaping from the end. He giggles. By the time Callum and Mum get to school, the balloon doesn't feel like it's going to burst anymore. It's still there, but now it's drifting by his side like a weird dog on a lead. He notices that lots of people are carrying their own black balloons, intermingled with multicoloured ones. Even Mum admits to having one sometimes. They'll be okay, he grins, as he looks at Mum, if they just tell someone. Wow. Charlie Skinner, age 10. Thank you very much, Steve, for sending that in. Yeah. I, just, I read that and I thought, that's, 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 that's 10. I was just trying to that's think, amazing. Yeah. writing that when you're 10 years old. That's incredible writing, uh, deeply moving. Uh, I thought, when does he start talking about me? <laughs> <laughs> No, I. He actually doesn't refer to you at, oh. at all. Oh, okay. I, I, I wasn't in Dalton John. I wasn't no. in that story at all. No, you're not wrong in... number. No, uh, it, it, wrong all number. joking, all joking aside, it was incredibly moving, and I, you know, I, I, I closed my eyes while you were reading that, and I was um, almost reduced to a tear. It's um, incredible and powerful. And I think a very promising uh, career beckons for that young man. Yeah. Well done. Charlie, thank you very much, Steve, for sending it in. So, uh, Robbie, what do we get next from you? There's a sense there's a sense in the book that there's new stuff coming, so... Yeah, there's new stuff coming. I, I'm, I love show business. I love my job. Um, I have different cards to play now as I'm in the hinterland between Christmas and New Year with my career. You know, it's like I'm a 44-year-old pop star and uh, I think that um, pop stars' careers are very much like uh, athletes. They're sort of over when you're like 35, 36, 37. And I've got a new deck of cards that I'm developing and learning how to play my next move. 
and there's all sorts of um, things that I've got going on. Obviously, I don't want to spoil anything by revealing them because they all deserve their own dates to be revealed. But for me, I'm very excited about the future. There's an awful lot on. I'm moving into different territories and I'm excited at what the future holds. Uh, the book is called Reveal, which Robbie has uh, done with Chris Heath. Uh, it's entertaining, as we said. It's profound. Uh, it's got a lot to say, and I think you're going to love it. Uh, Robbie, a pleasure to see you again. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Thank you. So thanks to uh, Robbie Williams, who's always just a great performer. He was know, very and, funny, And a great he? guest. And uh, if you would like to have... Uh, something unpublished that you've seen uh, read out to a guest. Because that, that's the way it's going to be until we can afford a proper person to come in and read it properly. It'll probably be me or Matt uh, doing the reading. Then you email booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. Oh, this is so good. It's so smooth now. Thank you. So if you'd like to say what we and basically we would love to hear from you because we won't just be doing these uh, shows full of guests. We'll also be doing other shows which have got your uh, correspondence. We'd love to know uh, your recommendations, stuff you're reading, stuff we should be reading, reviews of uh, Linda LaPlante and Robbie Williams. Yeah, book. You know, yeah. did you like what you heard? Uh, we are just starting out on this adventure. So uh, if you like what you've heard, please rate us on uh, on iTunes. But only if it's going to be five stars. Yeah, obviously. Uh, we're not interested in five star reviews. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, tell your friends that it's here. It's Simon Mayo's Books of the Year. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll be up and running and uh, and you're going to love us. Yes, you are. In a very deep and meaningful and five-star Yes, we're not desperate, way. by the way. Uh, in our next show, uh, we're going to be doing some correspondence. And also uh, our next guest-based show uh, coming in a fortnight will feature one of Barack Obama's right-hand men when he was in the White House, Ben Rhodes. This is such a good book who's written a book called The World As It Is. Mm. Um, and Louis de Bernier, uh, him of Captain Corelli's Mandolin, two and a half million copies sold, mm. uh, has written a new novel called So Much Life Left Over. So Ben Rhodes and Louis de Bernier. I just finished Louis's book last night. It's so good. There you go. You've already you got go. some yeah. fine recommendations. <laughs> We've kind of all, already done yeah, next, next week's, week's programme. Uh, thank you very much indeed for downloading us. This has been Simon Mayer's Books of the Year. See you shortly. Oh, thanks, Matt, by the way. Thank you. No, thank you.